1990, a man by the name of Robertson McQuilkin resigned as the president of Columbia International University in order to care for his wife, Muriel, who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He was at the peak of his career, his professional accomplishments, and his public acclaim, and he chose to walk away from it all in order to be the 24-hour-a-day caretaker for his bride of 40 years. Now, some might say that that must have been a difficult decision to make. In fact, many of his colleagues thought that he made the wrong decision, but McQuilkin said that it wasn't a hard decision to make at all. He simply said that he was a man of his word and that he had made a promise before God that for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, he would love her, take care of her, and protect her as long as they both would live. And at his farewell speech as university president, McQuilkin said this to the crowd, and I quote, he said, it's not that I have to care for her, it's that I get to. He said, I love her very dearly. She is a delight and it's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person, end of quote. Now friends, in a world of broken and unfulfilled promises, this story stands out as an inspiring one of someone who was willing to keep their promise no matter what the cost. And it reminds me of another person who has an unwavering commitment to keeping his promises. And if you know Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, then every promise in the scriptures is yours this morning through Jesus Christ. And we want to look at perhaps one of the greatest promises that Jesus made to his disciples and to us in all of the scriptures. And it's found in John chapter 14. And so I want to ask you to turn there with me. And really, here's how we want to structure uh, our time over the next 30 minutes or so. We want to just simply look at the text and we want to answer three questions about the text. We want to answer the first question is, what is the promise that's here in John chapter 14? The second question that we want to answer is, why is it so important? And then finally, the third question we want to answer is, okay, what should our response be in light of this great promise. And I don't know about you, but I think that it is unbelievable that the God of the universe, the one who created the stars and holds them in orbit moment by moment, who upholds the universe by the word of his power has made promises to us in his word. So as we look at the text, what is the promise? Why is it so important? And what should our response be to this great promise. I'll tell you what, let's pray together and then we'll read the passage and we'll answer our first question together. So let's go ahead and do that. So Father, this morning we come to you 
believing in your promises and also asking you to bear fruit for Jesus' sake in our life through the teaching of the scriptures this morning. I pray that you would protect me from the evil one and protect me from inaccuracy, but I pray that we would proclaim Christ this morning, as Paul said, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom in order that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. So I pray that to this end, you would help me labor, struggling with all the might that you mightily inspire within me. So give us eyes to see, and I pray that the Spirit would illuminate our hearts and that you would apply the scriptures to us. In Jesus' name we pray, and we said together, Amen. Let me read the text for us. John 14, one through three. And I'm guessing that this will be a pretty familiar passage to many of us, but here's what Jesus said. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is God's word. Okay, we wanna answer the first question, which again we said is what is the promise that's here in John 14, one through three. And so the promise that is here is that Jesus will return for his followers and will take us to an eternal dwelling place to be with him, right? The promise is is very simple. It's very obvious that he will return and bring us to an eternal dwelling place. Now, that seems obvious, and we could just close in prayer right now, except that this is not only a promise of an eternal dwelling place. This is a promise of an eternal union with the Lord Jesus himself, This is not only a promise of an eternal place, but an eternal union between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, this is gonna become more clear to us as we understand the betrothal language that Jesus uses here in this passage. Now, you say, what in the world is betrothal? I've never heard of that word. Betrothal was basically a formal agreement in the ancient Jewish community that led to a marriage between a bride and a bridegroom. So think of it sort of as our engagement process, except it was a little bit more formal. Now, what's interesting is I was thinking earlier today that my wife and I, she's actually uh, back at mom and dad's because my little guy Quinn is not feeling so well, but I actually got engaged right here in this room. In fact, we got engaged right um, kind of towards where, where, where the drum set is. And I won't bore you with the details, but it was pretty great. I'm just kidding. Um, but you know, I simply um, got down on one knee and I read a poem uh, that I had written to my love and I opened up the engagement ring and I, and I asked her to, to be my wife. So it was pretty simple. Now I work with a lot of young adults in Washington DC back at McLean Bible Church. And I'm telling you in these days, I just keep hearing about one elaborate engagement story after another. And I don't know what's wrong with these young guys. They like put on a carnival, hot air balloons, you know, you need like an Air Force flyover to have a good enough story, you know, to brag about to your friends. And my advice to these young guys is, guys, don't set the bar too high too soon. (laughs) 
I mean, it's gonna take you three years to figure out how to pick up your dirty laundry off the floor. So my advice is less is more. And if you want to, blow it out at the 50 year anniversary or something. But guys, less is more. But I wanna walk us through uh, the process of betrothal. And then I want us to look at the text uh, again. And I think a lot of this is gonna become more clear. But let, let me start with the beginning of betrothal. It began by negotiating a purchase price for the bride. Now this took place between the father of the bride and the father of the bridegroom, and they would arrange a purchase price for the bride. Now once an agreement was reached, there would be a prayer, a betrothal prayer prayed, and the couple, the the bride and the bridegroom would drink from the same cup of wine signifying that a covenant had been established. Okay, so a purchase price, a prayer, drink from the same cup of wine. The next thing that would happen is that the groom would say goodbye to his bride-to-be and he would return to his father's house and he would prepare the bridal chamber and the living quarters. Now this process would take up to a year, even up to two years at times where the bridegroom would be preparing the living quarters for his bride. Now finally, the last step in the betrothal process is that the father of the bridegroom would decide when it was time to send his son to receive his bride and he would take her back to his father's house and the wedding celebration would begin with friends and family. Now, hopefully you're starting to connect some of the dots here. Let me read verses two and three again, and then we'll connect some of those dots um, together. This, this speaker is making a lot of noise. Can I just pull the plug out of it? Or yeah, I can, Joey. I guess he has authority here, Joey. Youth pastor, okay. Um, let me read the verses two and three again and then, and then we'll connect these dots together. It says this, in my father's house, remember, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, let's stop and let's connect some of these dots together. We already said that the betrothal process began with the purchase of the bride. And we know from many places in the New Testament that Jesus also purchased his bride and the purchase price was his shed blood at Calvary. Next, we said that there was a prayer and the wine and it signified that a covenant had been established. And if you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed right here in the context of our passage this morning, although John doesn't look at the Last Supper, the synoptic gospels do, but right here in the context was when Jesus gathered his disciples and they drank from the same cup of wine And Jesus prayed a prayer and he said that this signifies that a covenant has been established. This is the Last Supper. Next, the groom would return to his father's house, remember, to prepare the living quarters and the bridal chamber. And as we've already seen in our passage, Jesus said that's exactly what he was going to do. He said, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And finally, 
Remember the groom's father? He would decide when it was time to send his son to receive his bride. And in the same way, God the father will decide when it is time to send his son to receive his bride, the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that this is amazing. This is breathtaking. If you can't get excited about this, you need to drink a Red Bull and read the book of Romans or something. But this is what Paul called a great mystery, that there's coming a day when the church will be presented as a pure and spotless bride, holy and without blemish before the Lord. Now, most weddings take about six months to a year to plan. This wedding has been being planned since before the foundation of the world. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a part of this bride. Now, men, let's just be honest for a second, because it's not really easy to uh, us for us to imagine ourselves as being part of a bride. You know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. It's never entered into my thinking, at least. But this is an analogy that we won't fully comprehend this side of eternity but it's what the scriptures use to describe the covenant relationship between Christ and his church. And I think one day when we behold him face to face, I think it'll make all the sense in the world. And so John 14, one through three is one of the key passages that secures for us a promise, not only of eternal dwelling place, but an eternal union with Christ. So that's the answer to question number one. So let's answer question number two, which again, we said, why is this so important? We already talked about what it is. Let's talk about why it's so important. Well, remember what we said in the context of our passage, Jesus is just hours away from his arrest and betrayal. I mean, he is on his way to the cross. He will sweat drops of blood in the garden in just hours. And the disciples, their hopes of the kingdom are about to be shattered. And it's gonna leave them in one of the greatest moments of distress and uncertainty. By the way, this was always the plan of God all along. It's just that the disciples didn't understand it. They couldn't see from the Old Testament that before Jesus, before Messiah would be crowned king, he would be the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. So Jesus would be taken, the disciples would be scattered, and even Peter would deny the Lord three times. And so this promise here in John chapter 14, one through three was meant for the disciples to be comforted in the midst of their greatest distress and uncertainty and confusion. And friends, this morning, I gotta tell you, this promise is meant to serve us in the same way because this life is filled with times of distress and confusion and uncertainty. And for many of us, we're in the midst of that right now. And some of us are smack dab in the middle of the distress of a broken relationship or broken promises that were made to us. 
There's the confusion and uncertainty of bouts with depression. There's the distress of financial uncertainties or a health challenge in your life or in the life of a loved one or family member. Some of us are in the midst of distress that is shrouded in tears and clouded in uncertainty. And for some of us, it took all the strength we had to get out of bed this morning and to drive to church. So the promise here in John 14 is meant for us to cling to. It's meant to be an anchor for us in even the fiercest storm, comforting us with the words of a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping Savior. So it's meant to comfort us. There's another reason why this promise is so important, and it's because it reminds us of what we're supposed to be doing as we anticipate the return of Christ. So remember we said that the betrothal process, the groom went to prepare the living quarters and it took about a year or two years. But what we didn't say is that this was also a time of preparation for the bride. See, for her, it was a time of purification and anticipation. Are there any engaged? Well, of course, Jessica's engaged. Any other engaged women here this morning? Okay, we will pray for you. Um, the next six months to a year is gonna be crazy for you. You're gonna be focused on all of the preparations for your special day. Your apartment will be filled with wedding magazines spilling over onto the floor. There'll be seating charts up on the walls and be careful with that. It could be tricky, the seating arrangements for family. Um, Just a little FYI there. Um, But you're consumed with flowers and favors and colors and dresses. Your constant focus is gonna be on the preparations that need to be made for that day. Now, one of the things I love to do when I officiate a wedding is I love to go and pray with the bride and her bridesmaids just about 15 minutes before the ceremony begins. And what I've noticed is that often, not not always, but often the groom is a bit more nervous than the bride. I mean, he's just kind of got a glazed over you know, we, you got to just direct him where to go and, and his guys are hanging out with him. But there's a different environment with the bride and her bridesmaids. I mean, there's an, there's an excitement. There's a, an anticipation. The bride's like, bring it on. I'm ready to walk down the aisle. Let's get this thing going because she has been preparing for six months to a year. She's been preparing so well with her constant focus on that day. And my question is, are we preparing to meet the Lord in eternity? Are we anticipating his return? Well, let me say it this way. If you knew that Jesus would return tonight, would you be disappointed that you didn't get to do all the things in life? that you really hoped you would do? I know it's a poignant question, but it's one that I think really diagnoses our hearts because I think that we get so distracted by so many lesser things and by so many smaller promises. I mean, I know, I know, I know that I do. I mean, just in the last few weeks, 
seeing how my heart is so tempted with being inclined towards stuff, you know, and materialism. And for me, it's, it's books and it's technology and it's clothes. I just remember waiting for iPhone 4S to arrive at my house and I opened the box and it was like, ah, you know, and, and then two weeks later, the thing's not even working right. And all of that anticipation, I was preparing for the arrival of my iPhone. And for you, maybe it's not technology, but it might be cars and it might be your career or your education or it might be the time you spend on Facebook or Twitter. And it's not that these things are bad things. They're good things, most of them. It's just that we take good things and we make them ultimate things by the degree to which we're consumed by them and distracted with them. You know, what I find most interesting about the betrothal process is that the bride didn't know when her groom was coming for her. Because remember we said that the father of the bridegroom is the one who decided. And so the bride did not know when her groom was gonna come for her. So she always had to be prepared. She was always watching and looking out the window and waiting and hoping that tonight would be the night that he would come for her. And when his groom would come for the bride, he would come in a processional of friends and family and music, and they would walk through the streets. And as they approached the bride's house, which was often during the night, they would let out a loud shout and a loud cry to let the bride know that the time had come. Her groom had come. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds familiar to me. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? See, I think Jesus desires that we be watching and waiting and hoping and longing that today would be the day saying in our hearts, come Lord Jesus, Lord, hasten the day and not being distracted by such temporal and silly things. So the reason why the promise in John 14 is so important is because it's meant to comfort us in our times of distress and uncertainty. And then it also reminds us of what we're to be doing in anticipation of Christ's return. Amen? Okay, let's answer question number three. And with this, we're done. But the third question again was, what should our response be to this great promise? In other words, what, what, what should I do about it? So let's look at that. What should our response be to this promise? Well, in our passage, that question gets answered for us and it does so in the form of three imperatives, three commands that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us. So let's look at that. Jesus said in verse one again, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is a, the verbal form here is an imperative. It's a command. So Jesus is commanding, do not let your hearts be troubled. The next thing he says is believe in God. That's also a, an imperative and command. And then he says, believe also in me. 
So what Jesus is calling us to do in light of this promise is to be comforted and to be trusting him. To be comforted, as we've already said, in the midst of distress and uncertainty and to be trusting him with a deep and abiding trust in the Father and in him. Now you might raise an objection at this point, you say, okay, Will, look, I see the commands here and it's cool that you use that fancy word, imperative. Um, but my question is, how do I know that I can trust him like that? You might say, Will, I have a hard time trusting him like that. So how do I know that I can trust him like that? Well, first of all, friends, let me say, it's okay to ask questions of the scriptures like that. I mean, the, the scriptures welcome those kinds of objections and questions, but that's a great question. And let me answer it. First of all, the reason you can trust him like that is because God is serious about keeping his promises. In fact, you might say it like this. God has staked his very name and reputation as God on the fact that he will be faithful to his covenant promises. You see, if God doesn't keep his promises, then he's not God. So he must keep his promises. But there's another reason why you can trust him like that. And it's found in this little word in the text, the word troubled. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. See, that word means an inner turmoil. And John, the writer of this gospel, is very intentional about choosing this word because in the surrounding context of our passage, that word is used three other times. And it's meant to describe Jesus' own personal state of inner turmoil. It's used in chapter 11 when Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Do we remember this? It's used in chapter 12 when Jesus is in agonizing prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. And it's used in chapter 13 to describe Jesus' state leading up to his betrayal by one of his own disciples. So here, here's what I'm getting at. Kind of track with me here. Jesus can say to his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled because he was troubled so that we didn't have to be. Does this make sense to you? See, he chose to bear the weight of the cross and the weight of his father's righteous wrath so that we wouldn't have to be crushed by the weight of our sin and the weight of the father's wrath. So the answer to the question, Will, how can I trust him like this? The answer to that question is because of the kind of person he is. It's because of the kind of savior he is, the kind who in the midst of his own unspeakable personal turmoil chose to comfort others rather than to seek his own comfort, who chose to bear the agony of the cross so that we didn't have to. And if you can trust him to secure your eternal destiny, then you can trust him in the midst of life's greatest trials and challenges. I remember hearing a story about a young person who was probably a teenager um, and was in just a terrible uh, car accident. And this young person 
was burned almost from head to toe. I think 80% of their body uh, was covered in burns and they were laying in the hospital room recovering and this person just could not be comforted (laughs) or consoled. And this person's friends and family loved them and tried to encourage them and tried to console them, but all they wanted to do was die. They literally just wished that their life would be over. Until the day when there was a knock on the hospital door and in walked another person who was covered with scars from burns. And this person was able to provide consolation and comfort to this young person who had been burned. You see, people who are suffering are most comforted by others who have suffered. And listen, there is no scar that you have that Jesus can't identify with your pain. In fact, he still bears the scars of what it cost him to purchase his bride and provide her an eternal dwelling place and an eternal union. And those scars will forever remind us of the great cost and we'll respond in joyful worship for all eternity. I'll never forget one of my professors at Dallas Seminary at the time that he taught me was about 94 and he's still teaching. So he's gotta be about 97 or so now. And this guy is brilliant. I mean, just, I mean, he doesn't walk all that fast, but he gets there eventually. And he was teaching and, and this guy was, you know, let's just say you did not want to ask a dumb question in his class, okay? And it was fun to watch the younger guys, the new guys, you know, the freshmen, if you will, raise their hand and ask a dumb question. It was kind of a little bit sick, but fun to watch for me. Um, But I remember him teaching and, and I remember him getting to the point where he was so moved emotionally at considering the finished work of Christ on the cross that he had to stop. He couldn't continue to teach. And I just saw tears flow down his eyes and I'll never forget this old saint so close to eternity said the first thing he wants to ask Jesus when he sees him face to face is, may I see your hands? So he could see the scars of what it cost to purchase him. That's why you can trust him to comfort you in the midst of of life's distress in uncertainties, but there's one more response that we should have to this promise. Not only are we to be comforted and to be trusting, but we're to be preparing to meet him. And I've kind of already said this, but we're to be preparing to meet the Lord in eternity. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great pastor and theologian in the early 20th century. And he observed that with every mention of Christ's return in the New Testament, there's a call to pursue a life of holiness and obedience for the believer. Does that make sense to you? With every mention of Christ's return, there's a call to pursue a life of holiness and obedience. And a serious commitment to holiness And obedience is how we prepare for Christ's return. In fact, later on in John chapter 14, Jesus will say to his disciples very plainly, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. It's that simple. Friends, the Bible knows nothing of a true follower of Jesus Christ who is indifferent to living a life of obedience to him and holiness to him. At least not as a persistent pattern of life. And some of us have to get over this idea that being a Christian means that once upon a time I prayed a prayer or I walked an aisle, but my life looks no different than it looked that day. Or that I'm prepared to meet the Lord in eternity because I come to church on Sundays and because I know all the songs. See, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Now that's a sobering thought, but it's a biblical one. But friends, if we've trusted him, then we will live for him. And to ensure this, Jesus tells his disciples in the next chapter, I'm sending you a helper, my own Holy Spirit, and he will take up residence within you. That's how we're able to pursue a life of obedience and holiness. It's not in our own strength. In fact, Jesus said right in this context, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to over time live a life that looks more like him. So that's our motivation to prepare for his return. We're not at all motivated by a fear or a compulsion to earn God's approval or to hope that in the end, my good outweighs my bad and he accepts me. In fact, it's motivated by the exact opposite. Think about a bride for a second. And think about how she prepares, as we've already talked about. She's got the dress, and she does the makeup, and she does the preparations. And guys, you've got to admit, they have it a lot harder than us. We show up in a rented suit and plastic shoes, And we come out of a coat closet in the front of the auditorium. We don't even walk down the aisle. But the bride adorns herself. And she prepares herself. Now, why does she do that? Think about it for a second. Why does she go through that process? Is it to gain the approval of her bridegroom? Or is it because she already has it? Does that make sense to you? You've got to get this point. Why does the bride prepare herself? Is it to earn her husband's affection or is it because she knows that she has it unconditionally? What is her motivation to prepare? Her motivation is the fact that he loves her and accepts her and wants her and chose her her over everyone else. That's her motivation to prepare. And did you know that that's our motivation to prepare and to live a life of obedience and holiness to Christ? It's not to gain his acceptance. It's because you already have it. It's not to earn his love. It's that you already have it. And if you've placed personal 
trust in Jesus, then God fully accepts you, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of his son's finished work at Calvary. And the deeper that you work that into your heart, the greater you will pursue a life of holiness and obedience. You see, obedience is simply the natural overflow of a heart that has been arrested by the beauty of Christ and the completeness of our acceptance before him. I love the picture that the apostle John paints in Revelation 19 of how the church will be prepared for that day. Listen, he says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, watch this, his bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so friends, that day is coming and it is coming quickly. And it will be a short time before the father looks at his son and says, go, it's time. Go get her and bring her back to the place that you've prepared for her. And so in light of this great promise in John 14, let's be comforted no matter what challenge you're going through, let's be trusting with a deep and abiding trust and let's be preparing. Amen? I'll never forget the day that I came out of the coat closet (laughs) and I stood at the front of the auditorium and I'll never forget when my bride walked into the room and everyone stood to their feet in honor of the bride and everyone was looking to catch a glimpse of her because she was radiant and she was beautiful. No one told me that day, Will, you look beautiful. Maybe maybe mom did. (laughs) Of course she did. But everyone said to the bride, you look lovely today. You look beautiful today because that's her day to shine. That's how we do weddings, and and I think that that's appropriate. But on that day, all eyes will not be on the bride. All eyes will be on the bridegroom, and he will be praised, and he will be honored, and he will be radiant with all the Father's glory when the myriads of angels gather, all eyes will be on the bridegroom. And what a sight it will be to behold the one who was slain to purchase us. And all honor and glory and praise will be his. Just as one songwriter said, when we arrive at eternity's shore, when death is just a memory, and tears are no more. We'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing, you're beautiful. Now I wanna pray and we're gonna sing that song together.
But I just want to make one last quick application to marriage. And it's this, it's very simple. The reason why you can love your imperfect spouse is two reasons. Because you're an imperfect spouse and because you have a true spouse in Jesus. And that is why broken promises can be restored and conflict can be healed and marriages, when both parties get that, can be fruitful and could be a picture of a covenant-keeping savior through how they live in their marriage. So you can love your imperfect spouse because you're imperfect and because your true spouse is in Christ. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for the word and the, the ministry of the word, Lord, is the apex of worship when the church gathers. And when we sing, it's our words to you and that's appropriate. But when we open the scriptures, it's your words to us in your inspired and errant scriptures. And so we wanna change because we've sat under the word this morning, but we've got no power to do that in and of ourselves. And so we're desperate for the spirit to apply your word to our hearts and to change us and help us to be comforted to today in the midst of challenges and help us to be trusting deeply and to be preparing for that day. Help us respond now appropriately with song and in the power of the Spirit. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.